Welcome to Positively Pro-Life Podcast. Positively Pro-Life is brought to you by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation and aims to bring you inspirational stories and conversation, important legislative updates and informative interviews as we seek to restore and strengthen a culture of life. I'm your host, Rana Tenney, the Education Director at the Federation, and here to co-host with me as always is Maria Gallagher, our Legislative Director. Welcome, Maria, to the program. It's great to be with you today, Ramel. So in the year 2020, scientific reports published a taxpayer-funded study that describes the removal of scalps of newly aborted human infants and the grafting of those scalps to the back of rodents to create a so-called humanized rodent. Details of this experimentation taking place at the Pittsburgh University with aborted baby parts obtained from McGee Women's Hospital emerged soon after, stirring up calls for greater scrutiny. The McGee Project is a campaign to encourage the restoration of of a culture of life to McGee Women's Hospital with the first step of asking McGee to cease committing abortions. In a previous episode, we had Meredith Parenti, the director of McGee Project, along with Christopher Pushaw, the director of our Federation, on our podcast as they prepared to speak with the Board of Directors. Now, today we have them back for a follow-up discussion on how it all went. Before we go into our interview, Maria is going to share with us our legislative update for this week. Thank you so much, Remmel. The following is from an article by David Osteen. Top anti-abortion leaders are continuing to lobby Donald Trump on a 15-week ban they believe should be the standard for the Republican Party, began a story in the May 18th issue of Politico. A similar story ran in the same day in the Washington Post. These are not publications sympathetic to pro-lifers. How happy are they that a 15-week ban on abortion is supposedly the standard position for the Republican Party and its candidates. That is a far cry from what the grassroots pro-life movement in the states has worked for during the last 50 years. National Right to Life has not been part of the strategy of making a pledge to support a 15-week ban as a litmus test for pro-life political support. There are several very good reasons. First, a 15-week ban is really no ban at all. According to CDC figures, about 95% of all abortions are already performed by 15 weeks. An additional significant portion of the 5% that occur later would be for life of the mother and medical emergency reasons or conditions incompatible with life in an unborn child discovered late in pregnancy. So a 15-week ban would do little or nothing to protect unborn babies from elective abortion. Second, the national 15-week ban strategy becomes even more puzzling since such a ban cannot be passed in the foreseeable future. It would need 60 votes in the Senate to overcome a certain pro-abortion filibuster. Right now, it would have at most 48. No one can reasonably expect the pro-life movement to have a net gain of 12 Senate seats in the next election, or even during the next presidential term, especially if pro-life candidates are being publicly bashed for not hewing to a national 15-week ban pledge. 
Third, attacking, threatening, or not supporting pro-life Republican candidates is sure to get press attention. The pro-abortion and pro-Democrat press likes nothing better than to promote and publicize damaging attacks on Republicans and on pro-life candidates in particular. Democratic strategists, together with their counterparts at Planned Parenthood and NARAL, must be salivating at such a prospect. We know that their research and polling shows that running against a national ban on abortion is the ideal strategy for them. To quote the New York Times in a November 10th, 2022 post-election piece, quote, soon after the decision in June, Democratic Party committees invested in detailed polling, hoping to drill down on what exact messaging worked best. There was a clear conclusion the most potent messaging for Democrats was to keep the conversation broad by casting Republicans as supporting a national ban on abortion and avoid a discussion over gestational week limits, end quote. Remmel. Thank you, Maria, for the very educational as well as politically savvy content that you brought to us uh, about the 15-week ban. Now, as I had mentioned earlier, here as guests today as Christopher Pushaw and Meredith Parenti from the McGee Project, who testified before the McGee Women's Hospital Board of Directors in a virtual public meeting on the 9th of this month. So welcome, Chris and uh, Meredith, back to the show. Thank you, Ramal. So uh, to, to start off, tell us about the board meeting. How did it go? Uh, what are your first thoughts? Do I get to go first? You can go first, Meredith. <laughs> um, well, we've been doing this since 2018, but this was the first time that it was a virtual meeting. So in 2020, they went to uh, just us sub submitting comments where we had been speaking actually in front of the whole board uh, the previous two years. Um, and then uh, they would read those comments out loud. And so we had many people write letters and supposedly they were read aloud. We had no access to know if they actually were. Uh, we had no uh, record of the meeting to know if that had actually happened. But I suspect they have been doing these virtual meetings since 2020. And this is the first time they invited us to actually be able to speak. So we had uh, five speakers. I think they were all excellent choices uh, and all brought little different aspects to, uh, to the table. And um, as usual, the board was uh, welcoming and appreciated our comments, but uh, make no promises and answer no questions. That's pretty much accurate, Meredith. I thought it was an interesting opportunity. I certainly don't have the background you do with, with respect to this specific um, type of uh, collection practices and, and what's going on at McGee, but I, I did think you know, the board was welcoming and at least receptive in theory. And I did think there was a different panoply of perspectives on this um, that I thought it was it was good, at least to, as a starting point that we were given a public forum to address these issues. Yeah. And uh, Meredith, first, what were some of the concerns that were brought to the board? Well, um, I had heard uh, Dr. Bill Wild speak about patients' rights. And uh, so that was what I spoke about was patients' rights and fiduciary responsibility, which uh, the 
president of the board, William Petriello, has always used that as a line. He has a fiduciary responsibility to the whole community, not just to some people. And what I brought to it was, well, if you believe in patients' rights, which you would all say you do, then are you honestly doing your fiduciary duty to all of your patients by doing what you're doing? Uh, we had uh, Representative Tim Bonner, uh, who's from north of Pittsburgh, speak, and he spoke about the history of abortion and um, just did an eloquent job speaking uh to the whole abortion issue. Um, we had Judge Cheryl Allen, retired Judge Cheryl Allen speak, and she had, Chris, you can maybe help me out with what she specifically talked about. It was, um, it was a legal issue that she was talking about. I think it had to do with the uh, consent forms that uh, women sign in order to um, give their their children to the research process, have their babies harvested for parts, um, and just how um, it's an emotional time for a woman, and to present that with her might actually push her into an abortion rather than offering her real alternatives. That's essentially correct, uh, Meredith. Uh, Cheryl gave very eloquent testimony, um, and I think that it was interesting that she brought up the consent issue because technically, even under Pennsylvania's Abortion Control Act, if you know the right consents are given, and you know there, there's basically silos between the doctor performing the operation or the the, the abortion um, and the, the person collecting the tissue, um, they're they're technically legal. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, but I, I, the other thing that I, I think Judge Allen brought out was she drew parallels between the type of experimentation that's going on at the university. Now that that is somewhat siloed from from although connected to to what McGee is doing in terms of the fetal uh, collection, uh, but you know brought up the parallels to Nazi Germany uh, and the experimentation that was going on and how you know consent is a very you know, kind of broad-based uh, issue, but sometimes you, you don't know what you're exactly consenting to or what truly barbaric uh, practices are kind of uh, shrouded under the veil of consent. Absolutely. Um, um, when you were sharing that, I mean, as I was reading what happens at, um, at, at these experimentations, like that's exactly what I thought about uh, what happened in the concentration camps because, uh, uh, I mean, these are human beings that we're talking about, right? And how gruesome and barbaric uh, these practices are. And and uh, and Meredith, when you talked about uh, in your in your speech, you talked about the baby being a patient. Um, yes. In some ways, um, in some cases, as in when there are um, fetal anom anomalies that can be rectified, um, the 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 baby is treated as a patient, and in some other cases, it is. Baby, the baby is not treated as a patient. So, can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So, um, when I got to hear Dr. Bill Lyle speak, he's uh, called the Pro Life Doc. So, ProLifeDoc.org, if you want to see his work. But he talks about the many types of uh, treatments that are happening now to babies in the womb, um, from surgery for spina bifida to um, a way of separating uh, twins when one twin is is uh, thriving and the other is not, 
um, to uh, other uh, blood transfusions that can be done uh, to help a baby in the womb. Um, all of those, what he was saying was, when they go into those surgeries or, or into those procedures, there's a whole team that is there to care for the mother and a whole nother team that's there to care, care for the baby because they are both patients. But somehow if you don't want that child, that child is valueless and is not considered to be a patient. But that's, you know, you have to do mental gymnastics to be able to come to those two conclusions. And I, I think that, that you raise a good point, Meredith, because as I was thinking, just to round out my earlier answer on on consent, I mean, certainly the baby cannot consent to anything. <laughs> uh, he, he is in the womb. And I, I actually had the pleasure of seeing Dr. Lyle at a, at a banquet this year, and he was talking about that very, um, th those teams that are set up and the procedures he do to, to save the lives of fetuses. I remember he walked through um, how... I think a, there was a baby that had a tumor on its heart and he did this neonatal surgery. I mean, pretty, pretty far, pretty early on in the pregnancy to save the life of the child and, and the mother, of course. So, yeah, I mean, you, 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 you'd hate to think that all of those procedures vanish because the, the mother deems it not a life or doesn't want to have the child when the technology is set up to bring, to bring forth that life. Yeah. Well, and the sad part is that, uh, moms and dads are given certain information. So some of them are given information that's very encouraging, you know, about opportunities that are available to help their child even before they're born. Other parents are just told, you know, why don't you let this one go and you can always try again. Um, and so if you have a hospital that's supportive of these kind of helping situations, then you're great. But if you go to a hospital where they think the answer to any difficulty is to take the life of the child, then the parents are only going to get so much information and, and are making that decision based on the information that, they, that they're given. Meredith, how do you respond to those who say that this research that's being done, as gruesome as it sounds, is necessary for the greater good? Well, of course, it's the same issue that we talked about with the Holocaust, with with uh, doctors who were taking these people who, after all, they were just going to be thrown away. So why not do something useful and use them for experimentation? And of course, when we value each human life and, and give them the dignity that they deserve, all of those arguments are, are just straw men. You know, they, they don't really hold any weight. And a lot of details. I'm sorry, Chris, would you, did you want to? No, I, I was just going to round out the answer. I mean, one thing I've observed in, in my time in the pro-life movement and, and particularly this year is that, you know, it, it's not enough that evil exists. I think a lot of times it has to masquerade as good. And I think a lot of the, of the, of the pro-abortion industry is focused on salvaging anything they can that even has the pretense of the therapeutic benefit. Um, I think, you know, we, we've had guests on in the past that outlined how, you know, th this was a big concern with, with stem cell research and that fetal stem cells are somehow the best or, you know, the, the most efficacious when in fact, scientifically, I mean, I know Father Ted Pacholczyk, uh talks about this. It's, it's actually the opposite. 
Um, and, and I think, again, just going back to the consent issue, I mean, in theory, you say, well, if the baby's going to abort, be aborted anyway, you know, why not, why not extract some good from, from its life? But, but you're at that point, you're already so pre-committed to a very ghoulish, and I would say inhuman uh, line of thinking that <laughs> there's very little residual good you can extract from them. Right. Yes, and um, I mean, I have to I have to bring this up because I just remembered that one of our essay contest students had brought up the exact same point about stem cell research about how uh, even though there is a lot of I mean there is talk about the scope for such kind of experimentation, there really has been no result uh, that we can see, and that is that it has produced zero results and there, so I just wanted to like bring that up there is a 16 year old out there who knows this and has talked about it so uh, I think it would always help us to have that perspective as well and um, um, moving forward um, a lot of it's quite interesting that a lot of details about these this experimentation is is not available to the public it's not out there. It is not something that uh, they are transparent about. Do you have thoughts about that? Well, um, when I helped produce that brochure called Dark Deeds Uncovered in Pittsburgh, um, I didn't have to look hard, honestly. Yeah, yeah, Chris Bashaw has a, a copy of it there. Um, there was an article in Nature, which is an online publication, that I just Googled it. I just Googled fetal experimentation and at Pitt and it came up. So it really wasn't covered up. Um, you know, we do have a media that is not going to cover certain things. So even though all of these things have been exposed by David Daleiden and the um, Judicial Watch and in, in getting some of these documents for uh, uh, investment from the NIH, um, the media will not cover it. I mean, we've shown these things to them and they just choose not to cover it. So it has to be us communicating with one another. We have to be helping one another to know these things. I did um, get to pass out a lot of those brochures at the March for Life in Harrisburg. And um, it was wonderful handing them out because everybody wanted them. So when I told them what it was about, they were like, oh, I've tried to tell my friends about this and they just don't believe me. So I was able to hand them something that had all these resources on the back that they could actually look at themselves and see for themselves, this is real. This isn't something we're making up. There should be some type of research into whether the hospital is violating the Abortion Control Act because we know that the Abortion Control Act um, prohibits abortions past basically six months gestation. And it would seem as if in order to get these body parts that the hospital would be performing late-term abortions, which, which are problematic. Right. Um, I, as far as I understand in Pennsylvania, you can have an abortion after that 24 weeks if it's for non-consensual sex or because of other uh, rape, incest, life of the mother. Um, but yes, they absolutely should be investigated, but who's going to investigate them? And when you have, so we're in, we're in a very democratic County. Um, we have, uh, you know, the sheriff's department, the, all, all of the, the legal 
uh, directions that we could go are, again, run by people who don't want to know this. We also have UPMC is this huge worldwide conglomerate that is over all of this. And so most people don't want to mess with them. So this is this is where we find ourselves. So that's where, again, people have to speak up. People have to speak to the board. People have to have to say, well, you know, I'm not going to have UPMC insurance because I don't want to give them my money when they're going to turn around and do this with it. And I, I think, Maria, if I could just round out the question, um, because a lot of the remarks I delivered on behalf of the Federation hit that exact point. I mean, in, in the Abortion Control Act, it, it's very clear that any child that survives an abortion shall not be denied care or treatment. So by that point, if they can survive, obviously it's it's a late term and it's past the 24 week. Uh, and the, the other prohibition is that um, it, it, it is on what quote unquote non-therapeutic experimentation upon any child born during the course of the abortion. What's, what's problematic, again, and, and evil flourishes in the dark, is that we simply don't, we're not going to say that they don't comply, but we don't know because they haven't been transparent about, in the McGee's case, their, their fetal collection, tissue collection practices, or UPMC's resulting experimentation with this fetal collection. Um, and one thing to bear in mind, too, uh, for our listeners is, you know, this all came out of a 2021 FOIA request that was answered that strongly suggested that, again, getting back to what is the optimal tissue, well, that comes through labor induction abortion, which is typically a late-term abortion procedure, um, because other types of abortion, like a, you know, a DNC or dilation extraction, will harm that tissue. So, you know, you, you have sort of these optimal conditions for practices that would squarely violate the Abortion Control Act. And what we were trying to do, and at least raise attention to the board, and remember too, McGee Women's Hospital technically is not affiliated with UPMC. It is a private charitable nonprofit organization. Obviously, UPMC receives state funding. So there is this web of interconnections, but it's not clear <laughs> who does what or who who has institutional oversight and review over both of these practices. Yeah, and one of those things, Chris, that you kind of started to touch on is that um, they're not allowed to change the type of abortion that they're planning to do in order to produce certain results. And that's exactly what's happening. Just like you said, they are changing the type of the of abortion that they do because they want to harvest baby body parts which can only be gotten by doing uh, the labor induction abortion instead of the, the DNE or the DN, uh, DNX. So yeah, what, I think you, oh, sorry, Rimmel. Go. I was going to move on to the next question, but if you have any anything else to add to that, um, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I mean, and I think even nominally, I mean, the university hired a law firm to publish a report that, that detailed their compliance obligations and whether they were met. And one thing that was troubling is that, you know, generally this type of practice would have to go through an institutional review board to make sure it is compliant uh, with Pennsylvania law. Um, but there are exemptions that can be granted for quote unquote de-identified tissue, which of course the report doesn't quite explain. And among other questions, is that de-identified from the mother? Is it de-identified from the fetus? 
if it is from the fetus, is that are you conceding that the fetus has identity um, and it is deserving of medical care as a patient? So the, these are all, you know, to me, I, I, during my testimony, I called it, you know, it begs the question, you know, to simply say it qualifies for the exemption and is exempt from institutional review by the institutions. Um, you, you to, to Meredith's point, you don't know what abortion procedures were performed, what tissues were harvested, uh, whether or not they, they did in fact violate the law. So it's just, you know, to me, kicking it down the can a little bit. And again, I mean, I think both the university and McGee are, are well aware of their compliance mm -hmm. obligations. It's just a question of whether or not they're actually being fulfilled. And just for clarification's sake, under the Abortion Control Act, abortions after 24 weeks in Pennsylvania are not allowed except to save the life of the mother or to prevent the impairment of a major bodily function. And this brings up an interesting question. Meredith, how common is abortion at McGee? I think it's a major abortion hub. There are more abortions practiced at McGee than any hospital in Pennsylvania. So they do about 500 abortions a year. And typically half of those are in the second trimester. That's just astounding. I, and um, another thing that's astounding, I think, is if we go back to the very beginning when uh, we were introducing this topic, the whole idea of removing the scalps of newly aborted human infants and grafting those scalps under the backs of rodents to create a so-called humanized rodent. Um, in the minute or so we have left, I mean, what, what's your gut reaction to that, Meredith? <laughs> well, when I was writing that piece, I would have to take breaks. I would just, I would be reading these, um, these uh, reports to the NIH and I would just have to walk away. It, I mean, normal people, respond in this way. It, it is normal to feel like you want to throw up. It is normal to want to run away and, and not listen to this. That's normal. What these people are doing is not normal. They have had to train themselves to do what they're doing and to, and to dehumanize these babies in order to do what they're doing. Yeah, and being decent, decent, okay, what a, uh -huh. um, Desensitized. Desensitized. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry about that. Um, but um, what, as we close, what uh, what is your expectation from the board of directors? Well, typically we will get a letter thanking us for being there. We have not received that yet. Um, we had been writing letters, uh, people every week since April, and nobody got a response to any of their letters. So our, our, we just continue to pray for them, that, that there were hearts that were moved on. There were things that were touched that made them think. There were legal issues that they may be fearful of. But whether we hear any of that right away, we don't have high expectations. And we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for being Thank on the you. program today. We greatly appreciate it. I appreciate you guys and all your work. Thank you. Thank you and thank you, Chris, as well. My pleasure. Positively Pro-Life is made possible through the generous support of the members of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation all across the Commonwealth. And remember, there's always a reason to choose life. Mm -hmm.